0: All right, so a couple of weeks ago, Brian, where's Brian? On the side? Um, Brian, welcome, uh, Brian Cho welcomed people to worship by talking about a game that he plays with Jacob, if you guys remember, it's where he says he lets Jacob jump off of really high places, and he kind of left it at that, and everybody was a little bit worried, thinking that's kind of like child endangerment, that's not a game. Until he finished his sentence, which was to say, he lets Jacob jump off of high places, then he catches him midair. And Brian reflected on the trust inherent in that very simple act and compared it to our need to trust God like that. And I love this. I love it. All kids, I think, do this. I was thinking, my kids do a, a version of that. They, I don't know whether to call it a more advanced version, or a more backwards version. But they do the same thing, pretty much the same thing. They jump and expect me to catch them mid-air, except they, with one added twist, which is they try to surprise me, you know? Um, and I don't know whether it's them showing trust or testing my reflexes. I, I feel a little bit like Inspector Clouseau in The Pink Panther, if you guys understand that reference. But it's one of these things that I realize will eventually stop. I'm sure as the kids get older, I certainly don't do it to my parents. And uh, Pastor Sam's kids, probably I'm guessing that they don't do that. It's like, Nathan, no, you know, just stop jumping at me. Um, But I do love it when they do this. Because every time they do it, it does remind me of something very basic and very core about our faith. The great reformer Martin Luther Described a faith like this, in fact. He said, faith is throwing yourself on God. Faith is throwing yourself on God. And I am guessing, I, I think there's a good reason to believe that he was actually thinking of this little children's game as he said this. Faith is throwing yourself on God. It's not just agreeing that certain things that God says about himself are true. And that's that. Faith is not just professing certain things to be true and real about this world. And that they're now important to you. Faith is believing those things and then throwing yourself on God. I want to break this down a bit. To throw yourself on someone is, I believe, a two-step process. I think it's a pretty basic two-step process. Seems pretty intuitive to me. First thing is you have to let go. And second, you have to jump forward. First, you have to let go. And second, you have to jump forward. Letting go to move forward. Now, I want to propose that part of the reason why we, some of us, we struggle so much to grow in our faith. Part of the reason why year after year, We don't find meaningful change and transformation in our lives is because we are refusing to let go of things in our lives that hold us back. We try to move forward. We try to jump forward, but we're still forgetting to let go. We're still holding on. We try to move forward. We want to jump forward, but we just can't seem to because we have chained ourselves in our hearts in our minds to things. And oftentimes, we don't even realize to what extent. We think we do, but we don't even realize to the extent that we're doing this. Except we can see this as a pattern in our lives. We see this as this weird pattern of change, desire to change a little bit, and then transformation where it, then it just snaps right back. It's like a dog who doesn't know that he's on a leash. And you can see this. You can... He, he, You can point out to him that he's on a leash by the fact that there is this radius by which a growth has been limited. We grow, but then we snap right back. And I propose to you, part of the reason why we're struggling like this is because we don't understand or we're not taking so seriously the part in which we need to let go of things. Can anybody relate to this? What is clear in biblical witness is that faith in God always involves letting go. Letting go of everything but God. Letting go of everything but God. This is what Jesus, I think, was getting at when he says, when he talks about the primary mode of discipleship, by those two words, that command that he gives to his disciples, or as he initiates the disciples, follow me. Because following someone always always requires leaving, letting go, right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Let go so you can follow. Let go if you want to come after me. And this is where today's story of Abraham comes in, because in him, we are given an example of someone who learns to let go, so that he can more faithfully follow. Who learns to let go so that he can more faithfully follow. So let's talk about Abraham just a little bit right now. His nickname is, other than Abe, what is his nickname? Father of faith. I always mention that's not James' nickname. The original nickname that was given to you was Abraham. Because he is among the first who are called to leave everything behind. That's the command in Genesis twelve when Abraham, uh, when God encounters Abraham, He says, "Leave everything behind." That's what He essentially says. Let go and go on this journey of faith. Let go. God makes clear: leave everything behind and follow Me, trusting in God and God alone. And now Abraham is hardly perfect, but one thing about Abraham is that he learns, and he grows, and he moves forward. He moves forward. In today's scripture, he models for us some of the ways in which we need to let go. If this new year is really going to be a new year. So let's put the story in context. What is happening here in Genesis 13 is that Abraham has been journeying in faith and learning and growing and prospering. And we're told straight out that he has a lot of cattle and sheep, and he has actually made a lot of money, silver and gold. Now, he also has his nephew Lot with him, and he too has a lot of cattle and sheep, and they are doing well for themselves as businessmen. Now, let me say this about Lot as well, just in case you guys didn't know anything about him, because every time his name comes up in the Bible, you should hear, uh, uh, in one sense, the background music change to something a little bit more ominous, not because he's a bad guy, not because he's a villain, because he's a good guy in one sense. He's, he's, He's like us in many ways. He's trying to be good. He's trying to do good. But um, he's sort of a model of someone who follows God half-heartedly or uh, somewhat selfishly. Uh, So you should hear this music tone and change every time the name Lot comes up to something of a minor key or something that's a little bit darker. Anyways, Abraham's herd and Lot's herd have become really, really big. That there begins a conflict between the two camps. The two herders, in fact, start to argue with one another. There's just not enough pasture and water for all the animals. So their herdsmen begin to fight with each other. So Abraham realizes that they need to separate. They have to part ways. One has to go to the left. One has to go to the right. But this is critical. Uh, it doesn't say which is left and which is right, but let's just say to the, to the right. On this side, on my right, Abraham looks, and it's this lush, green paradise of a river valley. Um, the scriptures, it describes it in verse 4 as, it was like the garden of the Lord, Okay? And you can see this almost like a permanent rainbow pasted in the background because it's so beautiful. And you might even see, I, I can even imagine like a toucan you know, flying across. And I understand it's regionally incorrect and all that stuff. But that's sort of a scene. That's what he does when he turns to the right. That's what he sees. Then he looks to the left. And we know this. We know this to be true in this area. It's these limestone hills. You see little bushes and maybe some cactus. And maybe residual little, little tiny shallow uh, water, uh, uh, like an inch or two of water laying on the, on the rock pieces. And, and it's these limestone hills and, and you can see these really thorny bushes coming up. And, and maybe, you know, it's just dark all over. And the music changes when you look on this side to the left. And you might even see, if you looked ahead, some vultures circling around. And I even imagine like a, like a skull, like a cow skull, you know, like a, one of those Texan longhorn skulls on the, on the ground just kind of lying there. And you go, which way will you go? To the right or to the left? Now, what would you do? What would you do? I know what I would do. But Abraham says this. He says, Lot, you choose. And it's not a game that he's playing. He actually means it. Lot, you take the first choice. I give you the choice, and let's end this conflict Which way? Right or left? If you go to the right, I will go to the left. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. Lot, without missing a beat, says, I choose the lush river valley. And he's gone In the same sentence. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, because he chooses and he's gone in the same sentence. Literally, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out for the east. Boom. Do you guys know how how in basketball or football or uh, games like that, uh, when there's a questionable play at the end, when there's a questionable play at the end of a game, when the time runs out, and the benefiting team, what do they do? They book out, right? Because they know it was like a little bit of a sketchy call or somebody missed it. They book out of there before there can be any review. This is Lot. That's what Lot's doing. The speed with which he books out of there reveals that he knows he did something sketchy. He's gone before you can say a Covenant. Gosh, I really needed to say that without missing that. But he's gone. He's just gone. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say, uncle, we part ways. There's no dialogue. He doesn't say thank you. There's no warm embrace. Nothing. He's like, I choose the lush river valley. And he's gone out of there. But Abraham, you look at his response. He's at peace. He's not torn up. He heads out to the limestone hills. And he builds an altar to the Lord. With like little limestone rocks. How is that possible? How does he do this? Abraham learns to let go. I see three things here that he lets go of that I want to point out for for us to learn from. First, Abraham lets go of his rights. First thing he does is, Abraham, he lets go of his rights. What do I mean? Uh, Culturally, civilly, then and now, it was clearly Abraham's right to choose right? As the head of the clan, as the elder, as the, uh, as the uncle. In fact, he could have simply told his nephew where to go. That would have been perfectly honorable. That would have been completely within his rights to do so. No one would have questioned him or looked down upon him, but Abraham voluntarily lets go of his rights, Folks, this is critical because in our culture, so much of our culture is about knowing our rights and insisting on our rights, right? But this simple act, this simple act of letting go of his rights is a profound statement of faith. Abraham has come to such confidence and security in God that he no longer has to say, I have to have things go my way. I have to insist. He can relinquish control. He can let go. Listen, when we insist or demand our rights, it can be a sign that we're still throwing ourselves on ourselves. To fight for other people's rights, that's different. Okay? To fight for other people's rights, that is a fight for God's justice. But I don't think most of us are struggling with that so much when it comes to rights. I think most of us are still mainly concerned about how much our rights may have been um, trampled on or how much somebody neglected our rights, how much maybe our rights have been ignored. When we insist on or demand our own rights, we reveal, we reveal that our confidence is in ourselves. Abraham threw himself on God and could therefore let go of his rights. You guys have heard me say this in the context of marriage in many, many different ways. Sometimes, sometimes people will ask me like this. Sometimes um, uh, couples will get in a situation and, and they'll come and ask like this, and they'll say, Whose right is it? Who has the right? who has the right to make this call? Who has the right to do this? And my response is, if you are talking about rights in the context of your marriage, about whose right it is in the context of a godly marriage, then you're having the wrong conversation. Yes, You have the right to expect one another to keep to your vows, keep your vows, keep the fidelity and for love and for commitment, those things that we made vows before God to do. But if I begin to talk about my rights and say, it is my right to do something, then folks, I am on the wrong train heading in the wrong direction. You're missing what the conversation you should be having. The Bible, in fact, does not use the word. It doesn't even have the word or the concept of that sort of rights. You guys know that? There is a righteousness. There's a right relationship. But in terms of my defined rights that no one shall violate, that is a development of 18th century enlightenment philosophy, where a human beings supposedly replaced God as a center of reality. Now, before I come across a little bit too indignant, I have to confess to you guys, I, I'm a rights guy. I'm wired that way. Some of you guys are as well. Max, my son... Um, is going through this stage where everything is about, it's not fair. He's just insisting upon his rights. It's not fair. He's um, insisting on his rights for everything. And it's just a little bit, actually, a lot annoying at times. It's just shoots and ladders. Get over it. But my sense is that he gets this from me. Some of you know this. Some of you know that you have this intense sensitivity to fairness, right? You don't like it when somebody violates your rights. Anybody here? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh, thank you though.) <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one, or I'm sure we're not the only one, Lonnie. Um, I find myself, I found myself struggling with this the other day. Um, Someone said something to me, and it's nobody here, just in case, you know, because every time I say something like, someone said something to me, people start thinking, (laughs) start looking around a little bit. I get that sense, and it's nobody here uh, that I, I. I don't think it was, it was, I was overly sensitive to say I felt it was disrespectful. I felt it was disrespectful, and I wasn't being overly sensitive. I wasn't being, you know, uh, just trying to make an issue out of nothing. I felt wronged. I felt um, I have certain rights. Um, I have a right to be with... I have a right to expect to be spoken to with a certain... Um, a, a little bit of respect... Um, um, A certain amount, not just a little bit, but a certain amount of respect, right? Just trying to be honest. Uh, I have a right to expect that my thoughts and my opinions don't get dismissed in a certain way. I have a right to be treated a certain way, right? And I was feeling all of these things. And and look, I'm not saying get trampled upon, be a glutton for abuse, but I realized... I realized in this context for sure, I realized I can let go. That I don't have to insist upon this. That it's okay for this person to not give me this right. So I did. And almost as immediately as I did do this, I could sense God's grace coming upon me. And, whereas I felt a little bit hopeless in thinking about this relationship with this person before, I found myself at that point immediately hopeful of how I can still help this person, how I can still be friends with this person. I know So many relational conflicts begin like this, right? Um, For whatever reason, someone feels wronged. Because someone feels like they have a right for someone to not treat them a certain way. I have a right to expect this person to do this and that. And someone feels wrong. There's so many relational conflict that just begins with something as simple as this. You just go, you know what? I have a right. And you know what? I want to tell you, you can let go, you know. And then you can talk about it. But if you think you have to insist On your right. That conversation, the right sort of conversation that needs to take place will never take place. It could never take place. You know what happens as soon as you begin to say, I feel that it is my right. And if you're in some sort of an interpersonal relationship, you know what the other person's you know what the words that begin to form in the other person is? Immediately it's well, I think it's my right. And now you got the battle of rights. Whose right is more important? Who was more wronged? And it doesn't get anywhere. It doesn't get anywhere. When we insist on our rights, when we believe having our rights will fulfill us, it just fails. But Abraham is showing us, yeah, it may be your right, but you can let go. Why? Because you're so generous of heart and good in your spirit? No, because you rather let go of your rights so that you can throw yourself on the arms of the Father and God's grace. And you want to let that grace be the determining factor in your life because that way, the way of grace is so much better than the way of rights. You guys with me on this? Second, Abraham lets go of needing the best. Abraham lets go of needing the best in his life. Abraham was a shrewd businessman, and he goes against everything he knows. His instinct says, you are getting the loser deal on this, right? He even goes against his need for security. The limestone hills, how can they possibly sustain the hurts? But he lets go of having to have the best. Why? Why? Because Abraham is becoming less dependent on his possessions for security and learning greater dependence on God. So he can let go of the temptation of the prime real estate of the river valley. See, here, here's the problem with insisting on the best in our lives in our lives. First, the best, folks, is never good enough. It is never good. Good enough. Can I say it like this? This is, you know, it's one of these things where it just a thought occurs to me, and um, and I might just regret using this as an example, but um, you know, um, 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 so my wife. Uh, <laughs> Over 18 years ago, and now it's over 18 years ago, I gave her an engagement ring, right? And I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that engagement ring was at least twice my monthly salary. It's just I was really not making a whole lot of money, okay? So um, I, I, and I got the the biggest diamond that I could possibly afford, which is, and it was just beautiful. If you look at it under a microscope, it's gorgeous. Um, and uh, the temptation sometimes, you know, over the years, and you think it, because it's, you know, it's, it is a little bit tiny. Um, <laughs> but it, the clarity is gorgeous, folks. It's just amazingly clear, okay? Um, over the years, the temptation sometimes is to say, well, you know, I got to get her a better wing. Because you look around and, you know, everybody has a better wing. I guarantee you, even if you have a... <laughs> The reason why I don't do this, and part of it is true, um, you know, what happens when you start doing that? Where does that stop? You know, there's some people that I know that felt like, wow, this is really big, until their friend comes along and says, oh, look at mine. And then another friend comes along and says, oh, look at mine. And then you hear about something else and you go, oh, my goodness. Because once you're in that race of having to have the best, man, you cannot stop. You cannot rest. Right? Am I there with you guys on this? You guys with me on this? Second, so far, appetite for best is never satisfied. That's the funny thing about best. You could have the best, but as soon as you get the best, you feel the hunger again. Okay? Second, getting the best often requires compromising other values. Right? You can see this in the story of Lot. You can see this in the story of what happens to him. His insistence on the best for his sense of security brings him to the twin cities of what? They're famous in the Bible for their wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah, before they were turned into ashes, Sodom and Gomorrah was in this lush river valley, and they were prosperous. And because, because of that, it attracted a whole bunch of wickedness as well. Right? It almost always seems to happen like that. Immorality, injustice was abundant in, the, in these cities, two cities, and eventually uh, a Lot begins by living outside, but it began, he, he becomes so enamored of the best that are offered by the city, eventually, by chapter, uh, chapter 18, you find him living inside the city. You see that? That's what happens to us as well. Just know this to be true. Getting the best of this world often requires compromising our values. We justify them away. Again, nobody ever says, oh, I'm going to become a sinner. I'm going to live in an immoral city. Or nobody ever says, I'm going to be for injustice. Will you just get to a point of justifying why you're taking these small steps away from what God has called you to do. That's what we do. And, and, and soon, we're in chapter 18, but we don't even know that that's how we're going to end up. But it's almost a done deal when you see Lot begin to take this choice of choosing the best for himself and insisting upon that. Now, let me put this in the context for us in a couple of different examples. With our kids, for those of us with kids, we have a tendency to justify everything, to, to be the best for it, to make sure that they have, to insist on the best for our kids, right? We insist on the best things for our babies, right? I love like the, the baby stores. I mean, and by love, I don't mean like love. I mean the opposite of. I mean, those baby stores, everything is like, oh, you need this. Because this stroller you could get into an, a 30-mile-per-hour accident with this stroller, and they'll be okay. Because it's got, like, all sorts of super cool things. And you can lift it with one finger. It's like you, and for whatever reason, you go, well, if that's the best, because I don't want to be accused of not getting the best for our baby just in case we get into a 30-mile-per-hour accident with our kids on a stroller... Everything is uh, the best. And they feed on you. And, and they feed on your, your, your thing to have the best. And then they have to have the best toys. And it's not just best toys. They have to have the best educational toys. And then eventually it becomes, we insist, we, we insist on the best educational opportunities for them. And when they feel like um, uh, they're a little bit older, they start feeling like they, you know, they really have to have the best jobs. And then when they get married, they have to have the, the best weddings. And when they ha- get married, eventually, they feel like they need to have the best homes and the best car and the best things to fill their home. The best is never enough. But you have made compromises all along the way. Because you never question the logic of what the best is all about. Parents, we always talk about this. I know that one of the worst things that we can do for our children is to raise them on the steady diet of the best, right? I mean, to be a Christian, folks, to be a Christian is to confess that God is best. To be a Christian, it doesn't take a genius or a theologian to say is to confess that what we desire, what God provides is better than anything else that the world can offer, that God provides for us and desires for us the best. But his definition of best is very different from our definition of best, isn't it? So oftentimes, but if we're insisting on our understanding of best and having that all the time, we will never give God's best a chance in our lives. In our workplace, how are you defining doing the best when you think about your work or your careers? How are you doing well? Is it primarily in terms of dollar value or is it only in terms, is it only in terms of the bottom line? Abraham, I, this is why I emphasize this, is a shrewd businessman. There's nothing wrong with being a shrewd, businessman but at this critical juncture he realizes that the bottom line is not the bottom line there are more important values at stake here first of which is to honor God there's nothing wrong with being a shrewd businessman. There's nothing holier about making less money. (laughs) Right? But the questions that we ask with the jobs and the roles and the places that God has placed us in, our vocations, our callings, Is your main concern about the bottom line, is your main concern, is the make or break point about moving up or moving down? Is your make or break point about the bottom line? Or do you ask the question of how can I honor God in this, in this place, in your chosen field of work? And I think it should be the latter, right? Right? I think we can agree that it should be the latter. That seems to be simple enough. So what are the questions? What are the ways in which we're defining best when we think about our jobs, our career? Abraham's soul was alive and well. He lets go of the need to have the best, and we see in him that faith, that genuine faith, that faith, That lays hold of God's grace is known by its generosity and its magnanimity. And the third thing, the last thing that Abraham lets go of is the should-haves in his life. We glossed over this when we looked at his story earlier on. But what happened in the previous chapter of Genesis was that Abraham actually made some mistakes that led to him being in this situation. He didn't do exactly what God called him to do. We think Abraham's perfect. No, no, he's not. He made mistakes. One thing for sure, he wasn't supposed to bring Lot. But he brought his nephew because he loved him. He brought his nephew. He wasn't supposed to be in Egypt either. Abraham was where he was. In this dilemma, in one sense, because of his past disobedience. He had confessed, he had repented, but the truth of the matter is that Abraham was in where he was because of the thing that he had a hand in doing. What do you do when you find yourself in a situation like that? I know what I do. I get down on myself. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. beat ourselves up saying i should have known better i shouldn't have made those dumb decisions now what i did is going to bite me where it hurts abraham could have beat himself up saying i should have told lot to stay home i shouldn't have gone down to egypt but he doesn't what 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 was done was done He had confessed his sin. He had agreed with God that what he did was wrong. He had sought and received forgiveness. So he let God have the should haves and moved on. That is faith, folks. Throwing my mistakes on the mercy of God and continuing the journey of grace. Abraham has other should haves here as well. He could have hung on to the other should haves too, right? Lot should have known better. Lot should have known better. Lot could have at least shown a little respect, a little deference to him. No, no, uncle. How could I even choose before you? He could have at least been a little bit more polite, right? You know, it, it's a little bit like that Korean thing. I remember the first time that I realized that it was a Korean thing that you do when you fight over the bill at dinner. Uh, that it was not a universal thing, that it was indeed a Korean thing because I, had, I remember I had dinner with a friend of mine you know, when I was uh, probably just barely making money and who was not Korean. And I said to him after the end of the meal, I said, oh, I'll pay. I picked up the check and he said, okay. And I was like, why is that throwing me off so much? <laughs> and why am I feeling this deep offense in my heart? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm like, you're supposed to at least fight with me. Pretend. There were a lot of things that Lot should have done that was customary that Abraham could have just said was, hey, he should have known better. That's common sense. He, he grew up better than that. He knew better than that. But Abraham lets go of all the should haves. It simply doesn't matter to him anymore. Folks, how many of us have missed out on the joy of being held held tightly, being held in God's loving arms because we're hanging on, our minds filled with the should-haves. Let them go. Yes, that painful event should not have happened, but it did. Let it go. You can. Yes, she probably shouldn't have done that. Yes, he probably shouldn't have said that. But they did. And they, he, they, that's what they said. Let it go. And you could have been. You should have been wiser at that moment. But you weren't. Let it go. And throw yourself into God's arms of grace. Throw yourself and trust him that his grace is more than sufficient. That you can let go and relinquish those things and it will be okay. You know, it's only after Abraham lets go that God reiterates the covenant, the promise that he initially made to him in chapter 12, verse 14. It says, God has Abraham... Takes Abraham, and, and you get how close Abraham with, is with God by the language here because it almost makes it seem like God like, takes him by the hand and makes him look and says, To the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. Wait a second. Didn't Lot just go to the east? So, what's, what's God doing? What's God doing when he says north to the south, look to the east and to the west? He says, everything belongs to you, Abraham. You hear the irony. Lot chose the best. But God says that even what Lot chose goes to Abraham and his heirs. And his offspring, it illustrates what Jesus would say later on in Mark chapter 10. It says, truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brother, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The many who are first will be last. And the last, first. In other words, we gain by letting go. Faith is throwing ourselves on God. And I said it requires two acts. Letting go. Moving forward. You know what we don't have to do? We don't have to worry about trying to hold on. We don't have to worry about trying to catch God. Because faith is not about how we can catch God. Faith is us throwing ourselves on God so that he can catch us. It is God who promises to catch us. You can let go because God will catch you. Let's pray. Oh, it's so many things that we hold on to. Our insistence on other things... For a sense of com- com- contentment, for a sense of fulfillment, for a sense of peace, for a sense of control. We ask right now that you would receive us as we let go of all of these things. Teach us, challenge us, move us, help us to take these steps in our lives. As we sing this song of response together, would you pray these things that you need to let go of in your life? and yeah. Lay them before the Lord.